0: Welcome to "Let the Bird Fly," a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Uh, we are in the studio here. We have uh, Wade. I'm Mike, and then we have special guest today, uh, Scott Keith, uh, director of 1517 The Legacy Project, or something like that. Um, his his wife Joy is also here, but she not uh, want to put on a headset. She's refusing to uh. participate. So, but that's
1: okay. <laughs> We're happy to have her.
0: <laughs> yeah. So. Um, we're here, and we're going to talk about Flacius and Melanchthon. Um, we're going to have like a battle royale or something like and that. And if you don't know who those wanna?
1: people are, we're going to explain it when we get to it. Oh, that would be a good idea, yeah. yeah.
0: So um, Wade's going to play Flacius and Scott's going to play Melanchthon. And we're I'm in full
1: the, 16th century dress, by the uh, way. We
0: have swords and everything. <laughs> if and I we would, were Facebook <laughs> live this, they could see that. <laughs> <laughs> and I will try to be the referee, but basically I'm
1: just going to let anything go, so... Um, but anyway, And thanks. then free for all for those, in case flight and him and you hear that and you go, what in the world is that? We're going to talk, uh, is it Marvel? Marvel End Games? Yes, mar- and it's Marvel. And uh, kind of plot, narrative, uh, why people are drawn to one okay. or the other.
0: So again, it's going to be me in the background on those things too. So um, before we go any further, I'm going to read the disclaimer. Oh, th- I
1: thought I got to read it since you did the intro. Okay,
0: why don't you tell us about uh, 1517 a little bit. You're supposed to sure, but do why that. don't
1: you, Mike? You're kind of dressed up today. You look. You're semi-clerical. I, I'm. Um, I'm speaking later today. What are you speaking on?
0: Uh, ap- apologetics for I whom? Think. The Wisconsin Synod um, Conference of Campus Pastors. Where is that
1: at? Pewaukee. That is at the Synodical Headquarters. No,
0: they're, they're It's at a Holiday Inn or something. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Almost as good. Which they, is a step did they up. move it just because you were coming? <laughs> <laughs>
1: they didn't want you in the Synodical. A, uh, it was a step up. Um, headquarters. Uh, I keep forgetting what well, we, we call that building the now. We are part
0: 1517 um, Podcast Network, and we're grateful for everything they do. And they don't just do podcasts, but there's a publishing arm, and they've done a lot of good work, and we're appreciative of what they do, and grateful to be a part of the network. And so check them out, 1517legacy.org? No, just 1517.org. You can 17. tell Peter
1: and I do that part. Um, the uh, one thing, too, I've been wanting to plug and just kind of keep plugging that I've enjoyed is uh, Dan Van Voris new podcast. It's a daily podcast. It's not very long. It's, I'd say maybe five to ten minutes yeah. normally to get you started in the day. Um, I think Dan's done a really good job with it. It's a, a really good listen kind of to get you started when you're getting ready in the morning or your morning commute. Um, so that is the Christian History Almanac. And then uh, Craig D'Onofrio had sent me some stuff, and I haven't had a chance to listen yet, but he has – I believe a podcast he had maybe been doing before, but now is coming to the network? No, it's a new
2: podcast. It's called For You. For You. Um, it's actually a radio program in Cleveland,
1: I think. Okay. And with a it looks like with another pastor from yeah, Cleveland.
2: Yeah, with another pastor from Cleveland. And uh, it goes up on the air in Cleveland, and then they sort of just archive it and put it up on okay. the podcast.
1: And if you've ever... Listen to Craig before, you know it's always a fun time. He's <laughs> been on God Whispers and other uh, podcasts. 200
2: so, Proof Gospel, he was
1: on too. Yeah, I encourage you to check that out. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Can I do one myself. more thing?
0: I keep forgetting to do this before you get to this claimer. Um, we keep forgetting to promote our summer apologetics thing. And you keep it's reminding not my me and thing, I forget, it's your thing. I know. And you remind me and I forget about it. So, uh, our physicist here on campus at Wisconsin Lutheran College, Carrie Keene, and I are putting together uh, a one week. Uh, Course on a practical apologetics, and we are full this summer. We just found out, but um, uh, we're gonna we're kind of doing the Strasbourg thing, trying to you know, Doctor Montgomery's not going to be alive forever, and Carrie's teaching at
1: Strasbourg next year, right?
0: Next year, Carrie's going to be at Strasbourg. Our listeners are familiar with the Academy of Apologetics, Evangelism, and Human Rights, Um, and we wanted a landing spot. for specifically uh, our group of people, Lutherans, but obviously we'll take anybody, but just to get apologetics on the radar of, of confessional Lutherans. Wisconsin
1: and, Synod especially, yeah, where it's not and, been very much on the radar.
0: And so we, we've been very, we got some, we had a few scholarships um, to give away, and we have four of our high schools representative with uh, campus pastors and or science teachers there. And so uh, Milwaukee's not Strasburg but it's a fun town in the summer <laughs> yeah. and Carrie, Carrie and I are not Montgomery and Parton, uh, but we both have personal connections with Craig Parton and, and the Academy. And so we're going to try to uh, duplicate that in a very small, small way going forward and doing that every summer. We've had a success. So wlc.edu apologetics. If you're interested the next year, we're going to expand it to two weeks and bring in a speaker. And so it's gone very well. And we're uh, I remember Dr. Montgomery at the end of my um, oral exam, when which he kicked my butt on. At the end, I'm freaking out, and he still, like, you know, had this look of anger on him. You know, like playing the atheist to me, and he says, and the last, he didn't stop the oral exam. He just kept going. He said, and what are you gonna do? about getting the Wisconsin Senate interested in apologetics. <laughs> like, I didn't prepare for that. <laughs> so I always I took that to heart. And so we're trying yeah. to, in a small way, do that. And so if you're interested, email me or check that out. Uh, and Carrie Keane's very, uh, really good about dealing with science, philosophy, and religion without being Ken Hamish. If you know what I mean, and we just and lost listeners. Yeah, that's okay. And in <laughs> fact, he—he he actually some of the writings that we have to, or the readings that the students have to go through. And what he's going to be talking about is how science was done on the University of Wittenberg campus in the early Reformation. So he's really thoughtful about. And all he that has kind published
1: textbooks on primary sources so. on all this too, which is very good. Um, Scott or Joy, Joy, you're not mic'd up, but you might know. We have been plugging the Here We Still Stand conference. I believe there's still a few tickets left. Yeah, I
2: think there's about
1: 45
2: or so left. Okay, so
1: it's a lot down from what um, we've been plugging it at from what Caleb had sent. Um, But we're definitely under 100, maybe about 40 then. And so tickets are 199 and include sessions uh, and your meals. Uh, It was our first conference for Mike and I and Peter last year. We enjoyed it. Great group of people. Hard to beat the destination. Um,
2: Yeah, hard to beat the food and everything. Yeah, Yeah. it it
1: was just a a great experience. Um, Mike and I will be recording out there. Uh, Last year we had Bror Erickson and um, John Pless out. We'll have to see who we can grab this year. Um, I know I will have a sectional. Scott, are you presenting? I have a plenary. And yours is on, do you remember? That's a really good question. God the Father. Okay, and I have on Christian Freedom. So uh, two of us will be presenting there as well, and Mike will be available to uh, drink a beer, a beer with, with you. Her, yeah. And uh, we would encourage you to check that out. Um, you can look that up at herewestillstand.org. Um, if you're in the area, consider checking it out. But even if you're not, like we said, it's hard to beat as a destination conference. Um, we flew in. We had a quick Uber ride. We were there, and there's not a reason to have to leave there that you can't do on a scooter although I didn't want to go on the scooters Peter did those uh, are yeah, his yeah, little libert- libertarian bird oh, yeah. scooters and um he uh he loves those things and then uh, or you can Uber ride something but there's a ton right there if you want to stay a little extra time before or after now we better get to the disclaimer Mike I haven't even been keeping time and so um we're we're definitely a little more long form than uh thinking fellows but there's a certain Keith, who tells us we should try to keep it about an hour or so. <laughs> we better stay disciplined. We never, Dan he's, and Jeff were always great because we could be like, well, Dan and Jeff go two hours. Yeah, you know, three but. hours sometimes. Yeah. Um, but the disclaimer then, uh, this show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot, so approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And that brings us to our free-for-all, where I think Peter likes to say we discuss the pressing issues of the day. And we're kind of at an interesting time right now. We have some playoffs going on in sports. Um, hockey, which I don't care about right now because the Red Wings are not in the playoffs. Blues
0: won last night, Fraser. Um,
1: yeah, Mike does care because his Blues are in the playoffs. They got hosed on a uh, hand pass the other day that shouldn't have counted, and you guys lost on that, huh? Mm-hmm. And then if you're in the Milwaukee area, even the Keiths know because um, they were at the bar the other day when they were playing. The Bucks are in the playoffs. Um, we won't talk about last night, double overtime loss to the Toronto Raptors. Uh, it's just kind of wrong that Canada's – wasn't basketball actually invented in Canada, or was that
0: – Yeah, I think you're off on that.
1: So it is our sport? Yeah. So we should be, like, defending our turf on that. But uh, Bucks are up 2-1. Um, baseball I'm starting to not care about. The Tigers are really starting to uh, collapse. But uh, how are the Cardinals doing, Mike? Not great. Not great? Good. And uh, brewers, though, are doing okay, so it's good for Milwaukee people. Um, But another thing that's been big, and I know I've gotten a little bit of grief um, from my own kids, um, from Joy and Scott and from other friends, um, that uh, there's been a big movie out. I know my own daughter, who went to prom with a boy, which I wasn't thrilled about, but mom said we had to let her this time. Better (laughs) than the alternative. alternative. Yeah, yeah, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's just I know what high school high school boys are and uh they're you know, uh, as a flation, um they are the embodiment of like the lowest anthropology you can have, right? And uh but afterwards Some of the high
2: school girls are too.
1: Yeah, that's true. And uh, afterwards they went to uh um is it it's a Avengers Endgame, right? I've looked it up, is that the or is it Endgame? You Avengers? had to
2: look that up.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um but it's from the uh mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's from the, the Marvel family, is that right? It's the
2: Marvel Cinematic Universe.
1: The Marvel Cinematic Universe. and um, So, something that's been fun, there's also been thrown in this, and I don't know if anyone in here watches Game of Thrones. That's something um, that I've not I watched Game of Thrones. Did okay. you watch last
2: night? I did. It was um, kept anticlimactic little... okay. as far as climaxes go. Uh,
1: so, we've had uh, a. <laughs> it's kind of fun if you get on social media at all. I know I'll have a lot of sports posts, and there are people that will comment and be, you know, oh, sports ball, that's great. Other people will have, you know, um, the Marvel stuff, the Game of Thrones, and I don't comment because I know my sports post must, must get annoying, but you'll have people who say, I don't care about Game of Thrones or Marvel. Um, but I think there's something interesting in both of them, and I thought we could talk about that for the free-for-all, um, is I don't think people are drawn to them for all that different of reasons. Um, I think that they probably bring in some overarching story or plot or something about life um, that people can be drawn to. So what I thought first is, uh, I was at the, um, the first two sessions of Scott's presentation at, um, St. St. John's John's Cudahy. And, uh, you were talking not just on being dad, because you did some really fun stuff that I know wasn't in there because I read the book. Um, but kind of on fatherhood, I think was one of the key emphases. Um, and it would be great if thinking fellows doesn't do it. We're going to have to get you back on to have you talk about some of the stuff you were talking about the father with the prodigal son. I thought that was really fascinating. Um, but uh, I didn't want to steal that if that's something you're working on for something else. So um, maybe Scott, if you could explain a little bit, Uh, I know we have listeners who are probably in one camp or the other, or maybe we have some in both. Um, But what do you think? And you unpacked a little bit in your presentation. What is the draw maybe for Marvel um, with such a wide group of people and especially maybe something they could connect to uh, from a a Christian standpoint, this idea of story, Um, what, uh, what, especially in our world today where maybe there's not a lot of, uh, what What about these plot lines do you think maybe are, are such a draw for people?
2: Well, I'd say, first of all, one of the reasons you probably see a lot about this on social media right now is that you've, we've really come into a golden age as far as storytelling goes on TV. Um, not so much in the movies, and that's one of the reasons why I think the Marvel movies have come out on top, because they've, for I think I'd have to count, but I think it's 22 movies over the course of more than a decade, told uh, through various other stories, one sort of complete story. Um, for Christians, I mean, I'm probably going to take it too far with the Marvel stuff here, but for Christians, you know, we should rec- we should maybe recognize what's going on there. I mean, when we have a Bible that's made up of multiple different stories of multiple different individuals, multiple you know different people involved and groups involved, and at the end of the day, it's really telling one sort of long extended story from multiple perspectives and through multiple timelines, which is exactly what goes on um, with the Marvel movies. I mean, you start years and years ago with a Hulk movie that they could afford to buy because it was the cheapest one that they could get, and from that they construct literally an entire universe of movies that um, all point, every single movie has a thread that points to the end that was this movie Endgame um whether or not you like comic books or sci-fi or whatever i think there's a lot of respect for the ability to do that and the desire to do that because it hits on a core feel i mean this is carl jung right he came up with he he sort of postulated this idea that there are there are certain themes that are cross cultural cross-religious that everybody sort of recognizes Uh, J.R. Tolkien said this too in literature that there are archetypal storylines archetypal characters that every good story contains these storylines and these characters Um, stories of redemption stories of extreme loss um, uh, good fighting evil with usually uh, good winning from an outside hero coming into the mix of the story Um, this has been popular in children's literature and modern literature and, and modern movie making and that people see that. And again, even if you don't, if you're not quote unquote into this kind of stuff, if you watch three or four of these things and you have your eyes open, I think
0: that storyline, you'll find it, yeah. you'll find I, it there or it'll find you. And especially at a time where we're working so hard to not have an overarching story that everything's random and, right. and that you can't get away from it. And, yeah. Uh, there's just something natural about that. Yeah,
2: I wonder. I always wonder because it's multiple authors for the the Avengers movie. It's not one person. Um, the original sort of, I think the per, the original director screenwriter that took it in the direction of an overarching story arc was uh, Joss Whedon, hmm. who did um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, and then I always forget the name of the space one that he did and. I love it, and I'm kind of an Uber fan, but I don't remember. Firefly. Firefly. Very good. Huh. Yeah, so he did those, too, which also have, I mean, I you don't have to love Buffy, the vampire slayer, or Angel, who is a vampire because it's kind of nerdy, but it's kind of cool. Um, but, again, 10-year story arc in both of those that culminates in an event or series of events that were being built upon for 10 years in each one of those.
1: Yeah, and it, I, mean, I mean, it does make me want to – kind of go back and watch some of these i'll have to find out later where a good place to start would be but it, it reminds me too when craig parton came and spoke at wlc his thing was on what was apologetics for the tenderhearted. Tenderhearted.
2: hearted mm-hmm. that's from um, montgomery's myth allegory and gospel okay
1: and he brought out some similar points of you know this is a possible contact point with people of why do these stories resonate right what do you, what about these stories makes people get sucked yeah. in and drawn in and and i think uh there is a, a fair amount to that. If you were going to recommend, so someone wants to get into, especially the MCU, you said right, Marvel Cinematic yeah, Universe. Yep. Uh, is there a place you start? You know, I I have
2: an opinion, but there are multiple um, lists on the internet um, of sort of what chronology to go in, and it's kind of like um, uh, C. S. Lewis's um, Chronicles of Narnia. Okay. He he wrote and published those in a certain order. Um, and it doesn't go from one to the end. It doesn't go from Magician's Nephew to the final battle. Um, but he start in Lewis's mind. He started with the Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe, and then you went through it. And I mean, kind of for before the final battle, you read that you read the origin of the story and the Magician's Nephew. And I kind of recommend that for Marvel. There's a lot of people who argue for going just movie order chrono- okay. chronologically as they were released.
1: It's kind of interesting because you could have the same discussion with reading the Bible, you know, should you yeah. just chrono- chronologically go through? Or, yeah. you know, I think a lot of us would probably say, well, maybe start with Genesis or John and then jump around or or stuff like that as yeah, well. You're not yeah. going to make
0: it past Leviticus. Yeah, I agree. Don't <laughs> go
1: straight through. You will stop at the genealogies.
2: Well, and I'm one of those people that with Lewis, I I always argue if you're going to read the Chronicles of Narnia that you read it beginning with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And don't, don't spoil the story as to how they... How they got there?
1: Yeah, and that makes sense. Yeah,
0: you know, to that apologetics point and why we're drawn to these things. In, in a,
1: this is a side note, Mike. You gave a, you got this timer so we could know how much time we have left. Well, you didn't want and to see like it. I just like to point so out that you have it. Just pointed you didn't want to out. see
0: it, so I'm just going to see it myself.
1: Thank you, Joy. Right. Now we can all see it. That's Boy, the mother in the room <laughs> making everything. Sorry, fair. Mike. You were making apologetics.
0: So, point. just to that to that point, why we're drawn uh, to these stories and the point of contact is can't, or I should say can be this, um, when we're drawn to stories like that, you're talking about things, um, redemption beginning and stuff like this archetypal themes that exist um, in literature and in sports, they're not as pronounced, but we, we use a term for instance, like someone who is not, uh, super athletic or whatever, but he's got a lot of heart. You're using terms that cannot be fully described in a material only worldview. You can't just say, uh, evolution or, uh, metaphysical naturalism doesn't really fully explain these things that we talk about. Love, uh, courage. redemption, Kurt, all these things. Yeah. And, and the point of contact is to say, you're kind of not allowed to use those words mm-hmm. if you have this worldview that says, it's just all random and we're just all molecules. And so to think deeply about that and say your normal way of looking at life assumes something spiritual a soul something like this morality objectivity immorality stuff like that that's the point of contact what uh, you what you mean I think what Parton means is that's the apologetic
1: yeah point. and that's where I see a similar thing that happens in sports um, because sports I think you could say have a liturgy of sorts right each each sport has a liturgy of sorts There's there's a sense of time um, there's a, a church here so to speak there's the playoffs there's periods in football. There's kneel, hike, snap. Um, there's a rhythm to it, but, but the propers change, right? Um, and within that, you know there's going to be a story too. Someone's going to win. Is it going to be the good guys or the bad guys? Now, I happen to be a Tom Brady fan, but I think most people, if you wanted to pick bad guys, might say the Patriots if it were football or something like that. Um, but what I, this is where I think what sports writers do is, is sometimes something similar. What do they do after a game? They take a game and they make a narrative of it. Yeah. And what do they want? They want these same stories. They want the story of redemption, the person Well, it's back. why
2: somebody like me, I don't follow sports at all, but I love sports movies. Yep. Mm-hmm. If somebody can kind of take all of the stuff that I don't notice that's going on in the field yep. and write a story about what happened, I'm actually really in. And yep. Some of my favorite movies in the world are sports movies, yep. although I follow zero
1: sports. Yeah, and I think even um, – living in Europe. And I know as, as you've been over there a lot too, Scott and and Mike, um, one of the most boring things in the world for me to do, like if I'm not invested in it is like to watch a soccer game on TV, like it, it just takes forever. Right. But to like be at a soccer game, um, is a totally different experience. Um, and I think you get the same thing that happens in there where people export all, or import all sorts of narratives into there. There's history. There's sense of belonging, identity. Um, and you have this long game, and it's just like back and forth. And if you're not invested, you're just watching on TV, they're like, oh, they kicked the ball really deep down to that end, and then they kicked the ball really deep down to that end. Um, but almost you you see in Europe, like, all of this history drawn into these things, you see it with like old firm with Celtic and Ranger. Um, when we were living in um, Rotterdam, Ajax and Fire Nord still weren't allowed to play each other because there would be inevitable fights and riots. Um, and Fire Nord actually, um, Rotterdam where we lived has a large non-Dutch population, especially a very high Arab, or, well, Muslim population. <clears throat> um, not only Arabic, uh, especially high Turkish population, and so they would have waving of Palestinian flags. Well. IX is from Amsterdam, and Frank would raise inv- Israeli flags. Oh, Lord. And you actually got to where there was team censored because of chance that you can imagine, some of the chance that came in. Yeah. But notice all these things in a in a healthy or unhealthy way, depending on the context that come into it. And so I think um, listening the other day, it just reminded me of how we do crave still today. And I think, as, as Mike pointed out, when we see things as increasingly random or – Individualized um, this kind of coming together experience, whether that's going to the movie or, um, you know, at the board meeting last night, I know there was a bunch of parents who wanted to get home and, and see Game of Thrones because if you don't watch it when everyone else is <laughs> which watching not, it, and then, which t- was not
2: great story yeah. writing. <laughs>
1: um, but, uh, but this communal experience that tries to bring in some, and it, it's, a, it's interesting the meaning that we'll bring into our own lives through that. Um, It can be a cathartic or a very angry experience, depending on how the game goes, how the episode finishes, if you're happy with the movie. Um, Scott, you have a best Marvel movie and a worst in your mind?
2: Um, Well, it's hard. If you've watched them all, it's hard to say that Endgame's not at least one of the best. Could
1: someone start there, or
2: would that no, be a bad no, move? No, that's no. where my daughter started because yeah. that was the first one. she ever I saw. mean, you could be you could be entertained. <laughs> yeah, still, it could it could still be very entertaining. I know
1: she watched like a ton of YouTube videos before this. Yeah, to that's get what a lot of, yeah. that's what a
2: lot of people do. I mean, because really, it's it's twenty two movies. That's yeah. a that's a time investment. My daughter is dating a boy who's not all into it, and he wanted to just go say in game, and she said, "If you do that, I'll break up with you." <laughs> and so they've been they've been like progressively going through the movies. My two absolute f- sort of not, um, infinity war in game, which are the two sort of, they really, you, you could watch those back to back and you'd be watching the, you'd be watching two parts of the same movie with an intermission in between, um, would be captain America, civil, or uh, captain America, winter soldier and captain America, civil war, because they deal with, um, things that I'm concerned about culturally, like, uh, Liberty versus security, mm-hmm. and sort of how much of your liberty do you give up um, for for your desire to be it's safe and Too bad and Peter
1: couldn't make it for this. We want to do Mills on Liberty. That's a big theme we want to talk well, about.
2: Well, I'd recommend if you're just interested in that theme, watch the then just watch the three Captain America movies: Captain America, Captain America: Winter Soldier, and Captain America: Civil War, because that's what those that's the the core of those stories are exactly that. What do we what are we willing to give up? To be safe. Um, and it's, I mean, it's actually the, its kind of complex how they answer it because uh, they don't answer it.
1: <laughs> I'll have to check them out. There's a good family ones. I can watch them with the family. Yeah, those are, those are. I'm not going to scandalize my wife. No. no. Okay. I don't, she's very I don't pious. think any of these would scandalize your wife.
2: There's <laughs> some, there's some shooting.
1: Oh, they, no, she's fine with that. Okay. We live in Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, Mike, you got a best sports moment as far as story that comes to mind. Um can't be the cardinals.
0: Um I I think the sports gets a little bit overplayed. Like those are stories that are forced upon the the athletes yeah. and the, I mean the, so that's where I, I think it gets a little bit over, overplayed. However, there is a great story I did not know about that was important for me culturally and not because of the necessarily the the themes but just an historical perspective. There is So Alabama football, great, wonderful. Um, I disagree with both those statements and in the, well, very good on the football field Yes. and bear Bryant, uh, in this was in the early seventies purposely, uh, set up a a game against the university of Southern California and, uh, didn't have to play that game, but set up a home and home. They were going to first play in Alabama and then play in Los Angeles and at that time uh, freshmen couldn't play and on that time ta- at that time Alabama had only one black player and it was he was a freshman so he couldn't play and bear bryant understood that the future of football was not going to be white boys from alabama and so he purposely got usc to come and the story about how he set up this game is fascinating he flew to los angeles and made this deal with uh, the coach mckay there and so the story of these USC players driving on a bus through Alabama where they flew in, that they hid guns. Oh my uh, gosh. And that the rural black community, which would now never cheer for USC and only Alabama, was like cheering for USC uh. and they knew the bus was coming through. And these black players were literally scared, right? Well, the end game for Bear Bryant was his team was going to get whooped. And then all of a sudden, white people in Alabama are like, I think it's okay for black players to <laughs> play football. And then that opened up the floodgates and all that That's kind interesting. of stuff. Yeah. And then to have people say, Bear Bryant did more for civil rights in Alabama than anybody else since whatever. Yeah. And two things that were remarkable to me, that was the decade I was born into. And so it hit me once again, this is not something of the distant past that we see in black and white TV. Number two, how sad it is that it took football to change something. Um, And yet there's, so there's this mix of kind of the shallowness of sports with something profound and I'm uneasy about that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there is a power of sports that I cannot deny, you know? And so I, I think, those kinds of stories, like you said, you know, you care less what the record of Alabama was in 1970, and 1971. But there's something there culturally that, so not, not really about the overarching th- themes, but a very poignant story.
1: Yeah, no, and I would say along similar lines, that, you know, I think part of the reason I am so into sports myself is um, being a Metro Detroiter coming from Michigan. Um, some people might have heard the last 50 years have been a little rough. Um, for Detroit, uh, economically, racially, um, it's not been the glory years. And uh, it's interesting. You look at the year of the riots, and the Tigers have a World Series run. Right, this is a big, a big thing. And then you look at kind of uh, the '90s, which, why that happened, people could speculate. I know plenty who would complain about NAFTA, but the auto industry really gets hurt big. And then you have the auto industry almost going bankrupt again. And those are all years that teams made runs in Detroit. And I just remember driving around, you know, the Red Wings win the first Stanley Cup in years, and everybody was out on corners just honking horns. And, you know, this you could drive through almost any neighborhood, and it didn't matter if you were from that neighborhood or not. It was a big event. Um, and kind of like the Bad Boy Pistons and then the, later the Chauncey Billups Pistons, of these teams that weren't really supposed to be able to win championships, and they're going to go out and they're going to grind. And I think that um, – You know, that's something that whether or not you were even a sports fan, I knew plenty of people who weren't sports fans were kind of like, you know, you get this kind of Detroit first everybody mentality of this thing that's bigger than, you know, we're all, it kind of sucks right now, um, but uh, we've got this thing. You know, the Lions, unfortunately, have never in their history given us that, um, but the Tigers, the Pistons, the Red Wings, I think all have too, and it is, I think it gets at something of um, something bigger than just the material stuff that's going on as well. And I think that's why is you'll, you'll, you'll see with fan bases as bad as things can get that people can be drawn to it. I don't want us to go way over for the free-for-all. Anything else you guys got with this or we'll get to some flesh or some length then?
2: I'd recommend that people, if they're interested in the idea of these sort of archetypal characters and archetypal storylines and, and what this apolog- apologetics to the tenderhearted, um, uh, pick up a copy of uh, Montgomery's Myth, Allegory, and Gospel. Um, we sell it at Shop Fifteen Seventeen for like thirteen right. bucks. Um, and also, it's kind of funny. I went to Shop Fifteen Seventeen dot org and just searched myth, and the book came up. But also, a bunch of the articles that we've put on the blog over the past five years having to do with this came up too. I mean, we've had we've had quite a few people. Right,
1: I think there's like twenty blogs on. So this just book. go and put in yeah. for the blog search. Put in myth. Yeah, and and I I would highly recommend that there's um. It, it, and I would recommend just surfing through the bookstore, to be honest, too. Not only because I have some books in there, but uh, there's a lot of great resources. I don't think people always realize how much 1517 is published. And I'm I'm amazed by how much has been put out. And Steve Burns just amazed me. Yeah, with I think we've released input, 68 output,
2: original titles in three years.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot to check out there. If If you ever go to a conference and you see the book stand, you will be amazed. And it's not just like oh, we're putting out, um, you know, 15 cents is just cranking out. They're putting out good stuff um, at a very amazing rate. When, when a lot of publishing houses in the Christian world are struggling to put out meaty things, right, because they think, well, people just won't read substantive things. There's a lot of substantive things coming out, and part of the fun of going to a conference is seeing people hungry for that and just picking up books and trying to figure out how many they can afford to buy. Um, yeah. Really substantive things. So I encourage you to do that, and then we will, uh, Mike, make our way to the main topic.
0: uh, and Melanchthon, two very important people of the Reformation, both connected to Luther personally in different ways, and then both uh, very active and very important in the post-Martin Luther Reformation after he passes away. Um, and some controversies that happened uh, in the decades after that and so if they want to
1: know more about Luther by the way where can they look Mike
0: let the bird fly is doing a very uh, slow walk through the through the life and thought of Luther we are to like
1: 25 15, sessions 20 in, and yeah. we have yeah
0: so we, we're definitely taking our time both here 15
2: 20 you have 25 episodes something on? like so that yeah, yeah I don't
1: think it's that much but we got to we got do the next one is the freedom where of did you thing.
2: start the night his mom had too much to drink yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we,
1: pretty much we started with his childhood, yeah.
0: yeah no, we, we started with yeah, and they're so about thirty
1: minutes, thirty-five. The winging It sessions are short, so but bo-
0: uh, both uh, Wade and I teach uh, the the course on Luther here on campus, and so it was it was good for us to kind of go through that. Wow. Uh, so anyway, Flacius and Melanchthon. Um, we're gonna try to follow this kind of pattern. Each maybe give not necessarily a biographical sketch, but just introduce us to Melanchthon, then Flacius, and then we'll see where the conversation goes. And maybe the goal is to say. Here's what we have. We have a person who's done some work in Flacius. We have a person who's done work in Melanchthon. And they didn't always maybe get together, uh, see eye to eye, let's just say. <laughs> but how, what would a Melanchthon scholar say good about Flacius and vice versa, or maybe even a critique that way? We'll see where it goes. So, uh, Scott, if you just want to give us a couple minutes on um, who Melanchthon is and why he's important.
2: Yeah. I'll stop looking at Instagram for a second. Okay. So, um,
0: (laughs) Philip Melanchthon,
2: I mean, the easiest way to describe Melanchthon for people who've never heard his name is to say that he was a colleague of Martin Luther's at the university of Wittenberg for 27 years around there. Um, he was also a a friend of Martin Luther's. Now, some people have said, Oh, he was Martin Luther's greatest friend. I don't, necessarily think that's accurate, but he was a friend of Martin Luther and colleague at the University of Wittenberg for more than a quarter of a century. Um, he, for Lutherans, if you don't know his name, it's always good to at least be familiar a little bit with who he is because he was very influential um, to Lutheranism, uh, arguably as influential to how we practice Lutheranism today as Luther was Um He's the author of two two of our main confessions, the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, and the author of one of the lesser known confessions, the Articles on the Power and Primacy of the Pope, and I'd say um, greatly influenced um, our last yep. and sort of culminating confession, the formula of Concord. Um, His students, the students who studied under him were the primary authors of that. And you can see Melanchthon's influence all over it. For pastors, um, if you've taken a systematic theology course or set of courses or dogmatic theology course, you have been greatly influenced by Melanchthon, whether you know it or not. He was the author of the first Protestant slash Lutheran a book on systematic theology, which is just, you know, a, a way of uh, writing a theology textbook that puts theology into ordered topics. Um, it's called the Loci Communis. Uh, and that method of doing theology, his final method of doing theology was pretty much followed in Lutheranism for hundreds of years. Um, and I think you could arguably say is still followed when we sat down to write a book on systematic
0: theology. What's well, it, not to interrupt, but uh, you had written something in your little book on, on meeting Melanchthon, that uh, the systematic way of, of doing things was pastoral for him, that right. this is for the doubters, um, it, it's not for the academics, and that, that in maybe the later years, that uh, what we call dead orthodoxy, that it's, we're gonna try to mine every little or passage. Or Luther Scholasticism, out. Um but it was interesting that he thought about it as the doubter. So right. and you can imagine somebody looking at the Bible, especially maybe somebody who in that time maybe didn't have a grasp on the story of the Bible and go, Where do I even look to even talk about sin or yeah. grace? And this was a pastoral kind of thing. And so uh, something that struck me when I read that. Sorry. Well, you, if
2: you read Melanchthon, you'll see a phra- this phrase show up a lot, that he's um, he's re- very concerned about soothing the terrified conscience. Um, you see that phrase a lot in Luther, too. Um, and it's interesting to see the approaches the two men took to how to deal with uh, a person who has a terrified conscience. Luther goes, he, I think, goes in the direction of proclaiming proclaiming Christ crucified in a very particular way to the sinner. Melanchthon goes in the direction of sort of making sure that there's definitional clarity, that the, sin, that the sinner can read the scriptures and have some help understanding what the scriptures mean when they talk about sin and grace and faith and justification and so on and so forth. And so that's what he does. I mean, his whole, his whole life is literally consumed, I think, with definitional clarity.
1: And um, I'd highly recommend if anybody's interested in how Melanchthon does this. Um, Concordia Publishing House had come out a little while ago, um, a translation of his 1521 Lotzi, and it's organized around Romans, uh, and I think a very helpful read, um, and it's interesting to read that in the light of uh, what's going on in Lutheranism at that time. I mean, 1521, this is a a big year. Um, I want to say it's maybe 200 pages or less. It's not very thick. Yeah, it's
2: it's about 180.
1: But if you want to get a sense for the tradition that develops out of that yeah. but also the content i i find that to be a very enjoyable read and i actually um assign that in my romans class for them to read before we get into romans
2: i've um i've translated much of the 1535 Lochi, and i think we've put excerpts from four chapters for free up on 1517 okay, nice too. so if people want to get and it's some of the important ones like the one the an excerpt from the chapter on sin, excerpt from chapter on law, excerpt from chapter on grace and justification Um, for free up at 1517. And
1: there's good stuff in there on free will too, at this point too, to kind of read that in the light of what Luther's saying in, in some things. Um, if you were to say, Scott, um, as far as you mentioned the University of Wittenberg, and I would say the University of Wittenberg isn't the University of Wittenberg without Melanchthon. Um, would I be correct in saying Melanchthon traditionally normally had more students than Luther? Yes. Yeah. Um, probably more um, important role in shaping the curriculum. Luther has big picture insights, but yeah. in putting it together, um, as far as the training of pastors that come out of Wittenberg, and Wittenberg is kind of the first seminary, or yeah. or it's sending out the first Lutheran pastors, um, fair to say, the number one influence as far as that first generation of Lutheran pastors?
2: I think so, yes. I mean, they'll they'll be using his textbook to learn Greek. They'll be using his textbook to learn, literally, theology. They'll be reading his postals as examples of sermons. Um, I said this a while ago to a group of pastors that Missouri Synod preaching doesn't realize, if you like Missouri Synod-style preaching, what a debt they owe to... Malachthon, because almost every pastor is trained in his thematic style of preaching. That, yep. I mean,
1: that's what we do. His uh, just a, a brief great story. Um, his Lotzi, he does not publish it himself. That's correct, right?
2: Not the first edition. Um, the first edition is uh <laughs> published via notes on his lectures on the Romans by his students, and he's very upset about it.
1: Yeah. And he kind of goes to Luther to complain, doesn't he? And Luther says, oh, this is great stuff. It should yeah, be. Yeah, Luther there.
2: tells him to stop complaining um, and to stop – because apparently he w- he had lost it on the students in class. Like he he just berated them publicly for doing this and then huh. leaves the classroom, goes to Luther, like throws it on his desk and gets very angry to students. And Luther tells him to, to leave it. This is wonderful. Yeah. And that first edition of the Loci, Luther – I'm sure in Lutheresque fashion, which means he's being hyperbolic, Luther – claims ought to be added to the canon of scripture mm-hmm.
1: uh, and it you know it's just one of those experiences if you can imagine as an author going to the bookstore and all of a sudden you see a new book by you yeah and you're like wait a second yeah i didn't there's a new book by me yeah. i didn't know about this um in the 16th century this is a lot easier to pull off today there'd be a lot of copyright issues in well and he
2: was concerned i think with what we would all be concerned about if this were to happen he was concerned with quality mm-hmm. you know he's like what did you? I wouldn't have said this this way in print for everybody to read. This was off the cuff in class. I'd like to amend that. And So he does. He yeah. he essentially rewrites the whole thing.
1: And then, <laughs> uh, would would you say? For
2: twenty five uh, years he rewrites <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> as far no, as more than that, sorry. Well, yeah, and he likes to revise for 40 everything. For years he rewrites it.
1: Maybe we can get to the formula after I talk about Flacius. But I do think you bring up a good point. In the formula, it just bears Melanchthon's imprint. You can't get around it. The you way can't. it's arranged, the way it operates. Yeah. Um, So if I can take it a little bit further on and just introduce us a little bit to uh, Matthias Flatsius Illyricus. For my dissertation defense, I had three people on my committee who all said the name differently, so I might say it differently. I had mm-hmm. to keep rotating and try to please you heard Jim everybody. say it? He says flockius, right? Yeah, but he
2: says, it, he says it like you're saying a dirty word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he says <it> like flockius. <laughs> Nestigan says everything the best. Yeah. Like
1: there, he, that's if, if Lutheranism had a pronunciation guide, yeah. I would want Jim Nestigan to be the voice um, that reads everything um, Lutheran. Did.
0: James Earl Jones, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and so uh, if, we're, if we're thinking about that, um I apologize in advance if I rotate between in in Wisconsin Senate we tend to say flacious and with what a, we tend to say with with a real Wisconsin accent, you say flacious. Flacious. <laughs> <laughs> um but I, I my default is kind of flatsius, um, but there's maybe some who, who say flacius as well. But so Matthias Flaxius Illyricus is a Croatian. Um he's from Labin in Croatia. Um I was privileged uh, thanks to um the uh, Leibniz Institute to be able to go and present. Um, they have a fallacious conference every two or three years uh, with Bob Kolb was down there, Oliver Olson, um, Erina Dengle who's written some very good stuff on that. And it was a neat experience to see where he's from. His uncle, Baldo Lupatino was actually killed by the Italian Inquisition, um, Venetian Inquisition. He's drowned uh, in a canal. Um, his his uncle had famously told him, "Don't recant, sing," which is very Lutheran advice. Uh, Flatius makes his way then up to Germany slowly. He has some rerouting uh, of his way, and will end up in uh, Wittenberg. And if any if, if anybody out there reads German, um, I think the best article to read to understand Flatius is. Uh, by Irina Dingle, and it's Flacius, Al Schuller, Luther's, and Melanchthon. So Flacius as the student of Luther and Melanchthon. Um, when when Flacius is in Wittenberg, he has um, a crisis of faith. It appears he was probably going through what we would call today depression. We know Luther struggled with similar things. It doesn't appear he maybe even ever had Luther for class, but he does go to Luther for pastoral counsel. Yeah. Um, and this pastoral, There's several
2: people that that could be said of that most people yep. would attribute to being students of Luther.
1: Yep, and they're not really, although yep. they're influenced by his preaching or his pastoral. Yep. And there's more books coming out on Luther's counsel, um, spiritual counsel, and I think these are very important. These letters he writes and the individual counsel he gives um, really shapes people. But academically, his number one influence is Melanchthon. He lives with Melanchthon for a while. He's kind of Melanchthon's personal secretary for a while. Melanchthon helps him get his first few gigs. Um, I think it's in, in Braunschweig where Flacius gets a position, and uh, um, Melanchthon repos, uh calls him a. Uh, oh, who does he compare him to for his gifts with languages? <coughs> um, Flacius never learns German that well, which is why I love translating his German because if you're not very good at German, it's great German to read. it's like kindergarten <laughs> German. Because it's right. It's how yeah. I would write German. Yeah. And. Uh, um, he would have taught Hebrew a lot of time. He was a Hebrew professor, and he would have taught it often in Hebrew. Where did he learn Hebrew? Um, well, I believe he started before he gets to Wittenberg. I think to begin maybe he's— or, Is he studying with the rabbis? Um, I think he consults, but I, I think it's mostly learned in Protestant institutions, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering. And uh, his his master's thesis will actually be on the Masoretic text. And if you are familiar with the Old Testament, there were these debates. Did The, the Masoretes put in vowel pointing and editorial yeah, yeah. marks— and um, he says those are original, and the reason he says those are original is that otherwise it would give credence to the Catholic argument that the church has say over canonicity in the scriptures because they added editorial marks. He's absolutely wrong, we know, from modern yeah. scholarship, but he comes at it from a very Protestant standpoint. Um, but he is a student of Melanchthon. Even to the end of his life, one of the books he recommends most highly is, is the Lotzi. Do you know um, which year? Uh he usually doesn't attach a year, um, but I would say he's. I would say fifteen, twenty-one, and thirty-five seem to be what I've noticed when he quotes it. That seems to be the additions that he's he's quoting, and uh, and I will say too. And, and Scott, you may disagree. While he goes after Melanchthon a lot, I have not found many instances where he will mention Melanchthon by name if he can avoid it. Um, although he will be as. M- Melanchthon will rightly complain about the rabies of the theologians. <clears throat> um, he will lead this cause that will probably treat Melanchthon unkindly. Um, but he he you, he clearly maintains a, a respect. Um, but I think part of the reason, we'll, we'll briefly talk about the interim crisis, that it gets so bitter, is that he sees Melanchthon as this formative influence, and now they have this breaking. And if you've ever had someone who's really important in shaping you in life, and then there's this break, um, you can take it extremely personally. Um, but uh, uh, Melanchthon kind of gets jo- uh, a job as a Hebrew professor at Fittenberg, and then the interims break out. If you want to learn more about the interims, thinking fellows, I think there's at least three episodes recently that have referenced the interims. Yeah, we did a walk through <coughs> the
2: Reformation, sort of 1517 to 1580.
1: Um, 1600-ish. Um, so I think we do two, like two and a half episodes. Okay. In terms. And they're, they're the most recent. Um, the final one was wrapping up with the formula, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you can go find those then at, at Thinking Fellows. Um, I have a book, in Uncompromising Gospel, published through 1517, which gets into that. And then my dissertation that was published last year gets into that as can well. Can I
2: say on Uncompromising Gospel? I mean, I think um, this time period, so sort of confessional reformation history, to a class of students is, is is a great class. I teach it at CUI to master students, but assigning textbooks is, is always sort of a crapshoot because there's a really good textbook that's also really awful, uh-huh. and uh, F. Ben takes historical introduction to the Book of Concord. He does a very good job sort of chronologically, and it's very chronologically laid out, yep. um, chronologically going through sort of the years of this time period where Lutherans... Um, felt the need to represent represent themselves confessionally um, to the world, to the church and whatnot. But it's just un, it's unfair. Um, it's academically, you know, he misses citations, and he, he cites things on page numbers where they just don't exist and things like that. Um, but uncompromising gospel, I think, is a good add-on to that. Um, what I do now is I usually assign the um, – Kolb, errand Nest again, which is a phenomenal book. Yeah, but it's more narrative. Yeah, it's it's less chronological and more narrative. But if and then sign uncompromising gospel as a um, as a supplementary textbook because it it fills in I'd say sort of that Bente esque gap that can take you through the the literal crises. Yeah. Um, and it's just great. I mean. Great book. Good job. Boy. Well, I
1: appreciate that. And then, uh, yeah, the, the discer- I, I know the
2: devil is already telling you he did a good job on it, anyway. So. Well, thank you.
1: He does that often. Yeah, uh, Mike does a good job of telling me the opposite. So, um, but then the dissertation would be devil behind the surplus, which, which really by gets. The, it.
0: By the way, I wear a surplus, and so when the title book came up, I put a picture of myself on the surplus on your bulletin board. Over boards, the cover, yeah. yeah
1: so. um, but uh, these interim crises. This is after Luther's death, and I would say, um, very unfairly the mantle kind of passes to Melanchthon to be Luther now for Lutheranism. And Melanchthon had never been Luther and never wanted to be Luther. Melanchthon was Melanchthon. And Lutheranism kind of, if we it's anachronistic to call it Lutheranism even at this point, I would say, but it kind of looks to him to be the rock. Um, and he has a lot of things tearing him in various ways. How the crisis breaks out basically is you had a thing called the Schmalkaldic League, which was a defensive alliance of Protestant um, territories, and they are defeated at the Battle of Milburg. Um There's uh, Saxony, and we've talked about this in the Luther series, was divided into Albertine and Ernestine Saxony, and the Duke of Saxony um, was uh, had important territory. And think of Duke George that Luther always complains about. That's uh, Ducal Saxony, electoral Saxony is Luther's protectors, and the Duke of Saxony turns against the elector of Saxony and sides with the emperor and the Catholic forces, and the Schmalkaldic League is defeated, and it appears militarily Lutheranism is done for. Um, You do not have the military- Defeated
2: handily and quickly. Yeah. You don't have
1: (laughs) the military protections, I would say the um, state protections- That you had before to make you feel comfortable it appears the university of wittenberg might be done for this it's obviously is a, a period of time and it's very concerning to melanchthon and those that are at wittenberg keep in mind this is where pastors are coming from yeah um and uh what the emperor tries to do is to institute this kind of re-catholicizing agenda um this is produced at augsburg it's called the augsburg interim And Melanchthon rather courageously speaks out against the Augsburg interim. He says, we can't accept this. Um, Moritz, who was the Duke of Saxony, who gets called the Judas of Meissen because he was from Meissen, even he says, there's no way I can enforce this. Like People will turn on me if I try to enforce this. There's then a compromise formula that's drawn up. um, And some Wittenberg professors do participate in the drawing up of this. This is called the Leipzig Proposal, flacious in a propaganda coup calls it the Leipzig <clears throat> interim uh, to attach it to what had happened at Augsburg. And, and what the hope was was in, with this was we're going to try to maintain as much Lutheranism as we can and then compromise where we can to survive this, to get through this. Hopefully, eventually the emperor will be pushed out um, and then we'll have more stability again. Um, this is where the break is going to happen between Philip and, um, and Flatsius. Um, Flacius is going to make his way around Germany trying to find a new home uh, as a Croatian he complains about the food at most of these places he doesn't <laughs> like smoked fish and bacon um, uh, and he eventually ends up at Magdeburg with um, Nicholas Amsdorst who kind of becomes the grandfather of what will be called Gnesio lutheranism um, and these Gnesios will tend to oppose the interim and then after Moritz um, does turn on the emperor and the Catholic forces are pushed back Stability comes back. Um, these issues now, there's you feel you have camps that develop, and uh, and you have then kind of, I would say, propaganda war almost, even these treatises that are written against each other. Um, you also have, and Thinking Fellows talks about this, the development of what's called Philippism, which is, I would say, also unfair to Philip because Philippism is the name given to people who are students of Philip and tend to be Um, what we would probably consider to be a little bit more reformationally to the theological left. Would that be a a fair way to say it, Scott? Um, And they often hold positions that Philip himself wouldn't have affirmed, um, but they will kind of be, just as people will hold positions they attribute to Luther that Luther did not hold. Um, And so you have uh, a bitterness that lingers well beyond the formula of Concord. So we're talking basically 1547, 1547 beyond 1580. The Formula of Concord is meant to solve these disagreements. Um, Some Ganesio Lutherans oppose the Formula of Concord because they see it as being foisted by the state, but some Ganesios help write the Formula of Concord. And I would say, to get back to the Formula of Concord um, point, and Scott, maybe you can correct me, the Formula of Concord represents Melanchthonian method with, in many ways, moderate to Ganesio positions on things, um, even though sometimes Ganesios have to be censured. So, for instance, on Good Works, they're kind of saying Amsdorf went too far, although right. they won't name Amsdorf. Definitely on Original Sin, they're going to say Flacius went too right. far. <clears throat> but at the same time, they're adopting a somewhat Ganesio position. They are saying Original Sin is more than an accident. It's more mm-hmm. than like chalk on your shirt that you can wipe off. Um, same is going to be true on Free Will. Um but I thought maybe what could be fun and like I think we're going to go over time unless Scott makes us end but we don't well, get you know, Scott here every the day. The person <laughs>
2: who tells you to stick to an hour
1: works for me so we can do whatever we want. Okay, good. Cuz I don't want to limit this. Um, but I'd really encourage you to listen to the last few thinking fellow episodes for context on this too. Um, maybe if I maybe just give me 2 minutes on Flacious writings in this in between these years and then Scott maybe your take on how Philip takes these and and, and how Philip navigates these things. Um, I would say Flacia starts off in many ways on the right side of issues. Um, as far as with the interim crisis, Article 10 will adopt Flacia's statement that in a, in a time of um, persecution or conflict, um, nothing is adiaphora. Things take on meaning. Um, you can't compromise so much as people had because that's viewed as giving credence to the recatholicizing agenda that had happened. Yeah, so... I
2: always think of this when I'm trying to explain this to laymen is to say, if you were invaded by a foreign power, um, things that you may not have really cared about before. Um, like I can, you can only buy your bread from this store, right? You, you may not have cared about that before if that was the the store that just kind of carried bread. But if somebody's holding a a sword over your head and saying, unless you buy bread from this store, I'm going to chop your head off. That is no longer indifferent. Now, yep. you you know, if you're a person of character, if you're a person who cares about liberty or whatever, you're going to do whatever you can do to get bread somewhere else just as
1: for the sake of taking a stand yep. against that tyranny. And that's where the, the surplus comes up, and Mike joked about. Um, one of the things that was, some territories, the pastor still wore the surplus, but in other territories, they were supposed to be forced to wear them again. And that's where some people will say, now wearing the surplus. That's not a, a free thing. It's not adi offer anymore because right. it's being forced. After the Reformation, it doesn't matter, or after this time, it doesn't matter if you're in a surplus or not because you're not being commanded, but that became the bread store, um, for instance. You have controversies then that also will break out um, about good works. Major says good works are necessary for salvation. Amsdorff will oppose him and say good works are detrimental to salvation.
2: Melanchthon says something similar to good works are are necessary to salvation in 1535. Uh, And even
1: Flacius will say something similar with the Eisenach synod of theoretically under the law, we could say this. Um, But even Melanchthon will come out against Major in the end, or at least say you've got to revise this. Um, You have controversy over free will, in which I would say Flacius is largely on the right side there. Um, original sin is going to be where Flacius errs big time. Um, but even there, and Scott probably already can can tell, but I'm a little bit defensive of Flacius and Amsdorff sometimes into like, we have to understand what they were trying to say. Um, their language is error, right? And and if you take Flacius' language and run with it, you could even say, people refer to it as a Flacian heresy, and this will be where Flacius will Get sucked into a debate using Aristotelian language, and he will say original sin is the substance of man, which is clearly condemned by the formula of Concord. Well, stuff.
2: can we do a, a modern yeah. warning here? Sure. And just, this just got me in some trouble on Thinking Fellows, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I think the modern warning here is not to get sucked too far into using philosophical language. Okay. To um, convey biblical truths. Yep. Now, that's not to say I hate anybody who knows me. To say I, if somebody gets from that that I hate philosophy, they just they're not doing their homework. I I did a minor in philosophy. I've studied philosophy my entire life. Uh-huh. Um, I use a, I use philosophy a lot when I teach apologetics. So this is just silly. But there is a move. There is a a tendency throughout our history, throughout the church's history, to baptize pagan philosophies yep. and to um, put the language that they use to dis- describe things like substance and accidents um, on a par with scripture and Melanchthon falls in, into this. Er- I mean, if you asked me before the show, can I give one big criticism of Melanchthon? I'd say, yeah, is that in his pursuit of definitional clarity um, in order to ease the conscience, he uses Aristotelian terms correctly, um, but he runs into this, sort of barrier that not everybody sees the Bible in terms of Aristotelian categories. Yeah. And so they don't get what he's saying. And I think this is, this is probably what fallacious gets sucked into. This is what yeah. people in the Lutheran church today are very much getting sucked into is using Aristotelian categories because they, for whatever reason, think that just the straight uh, teaching of scripture isn't going to be helpful enough or whatever. Um, and it's, this argument that we're talking about that's probably over a lot of people's heads i think is sufficient warning to say we have to be careful about this it's not that we cannot that philosophy can't serve theology it certainly can but we have to be careful about how far we let these categories go in our descriptions and our way of talking about how we believe these things they're helpful but when they've gone from helpful to determinative
0: We've taken a step too far. And one way to think about yep. it, to, just for the, to, the, the laity, you're shoehorning Scripture into categories is one right. way to think about it. And we do this on a, just a regular surface level kind of stuff. You say... Um, I need some advice for business. And so I look for, I mean, it's, it's not the exact same thing, but I look for the scripture to tell me something specific about <laughs> business or I have this concept of my of my life yes. and I'm going to find something that Jesus said <laughs> or from the Old Testament that's yes. going to put it. So I have yeah. to make a t-shirt. I for, can do
2: all things for God who strengthens. Yeah. Me. I was just going to yeah. bring
0: that up that, you know, I have a t-shirt that for my, you know, B squad, Lutheran, boys basketball team, I need an inspirational yeah. shirt. So I'm gonna we can do all things all right. things are
2: possible. Which if with they were God. True, be or a phrase that comes up at the end of uh, parables that actually require I think a decent amount of study to understand the uh, last shall be first and the first shall be last, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just throw that out there as though it's not connected to greater context and a parable that actually needs some explaining. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So those are silly examples, yeah. I mean, but it's a much higher and complicated thing. But for the laity to understand, what do you mean by that? Yeah. that that's yeah. kind of you're, sh- you're taking something and put it into a category over here and you miss the original context. I mean. Well, I mean, think the
2: classic one from Melanchthon is, thing i brought up earlier when he says in 1535 that good works are necessary to salvation now if you read that just in english and just with sort of normal context that's kind of offensive phrase you know it's that you're saying that my good works in some way are necessary in order for me to have salvation well that's not what he's saying he's using very specific aristotelian categories what does
0: necessary mean yeah (laughs) yeah
2: what does necessary mean what what aristotelian category of necessary is he saying and as you get into it you find out well he's just saying well i mean god provides good works to the christian once they are saved yeah. and thus they're necessary because god provides them well that's not offensive at all right but if you don't get that he's doing aristotle there yeah it's difficult and so many people don't get that he's doing aristotle yeah and, well and i we think...
0: shouldn't blame aristotle it's people that are right trying to put aristotle in a place where he shouldn't go yeah
1: yeah and i i don't want to get too far afield because i also know some of the stuff that we could unpack with the bringing philosophy. And, and I agree with Scott, And um, if you got heat and thinking fellows doesn't want to do an episode on it, I might convince these guys to talk a little bit about it as we get to natural law stuff <clears throat> with that too. Um, but I think you've put it really well with Fallacious is um, he gets sucked into using philosophical categories, which was not his intention. And this is in the heat of a debate, right? An actual debate is taking place. And his opponent, Strigel says, well, is original sin an accident or a substance? And in Aristotelian yeah. philosophy, my hair is an accident. I used to have it, and now it's gone, right? God <laughs> gives, and God takes away. Um, but my soul is part of who I am. Yeah. And Flatius realizes, well, original sin's not an accident like Wade's hair. Yeah. <clears throat> it's deeper than that. And so he says it's a substance. The problem with that is that makes potentially God a creator of evil, right? Because this is part of what it is to be human. And it causes real problems in Christology, because was Christ truly human then if he didn't have original sin? If being sin is part of the substance of being a person, was Christ really a person? And then Flacius will lean on Luther language where Luther says he talks about nature, right? Sin nature. Mm -hmm. But that's not exactly the same thing. And this would I think at the end we'll do our quick weaknesses and strengths, but this is a weakness of Flacius's. At that point he should have said, you know what? I shouldn't have used those terms but this is what I'm defending. And instead he dies in an unmarked grave um, and really loses his academic career and becomes a wanderer for the rest of his life with his big family um, because of his refusal to just back down and say, I shouldn't have said that. There are people who will stick with him. There are fallations who will stick with him in his language. But this is also where he loses a lot of Ganesio Lutheran friends. Um, and even formulators of the formula of Concord who would have sympathized with him on a lot of things that say, "You can't stick to this." He will later talk about more uh, material and formal substance. He will, for instance, in his Clavis, he appends at the end um, something on this. Um, but still trying to. Put but it he in insists in the on the on the yeah. language, and this is where I would say Fallatius, um or Flacius loses everything he had built up so far, as far as trying to. Stand for the legacy of Luther, um, and to stand against what he saw as early dangers coming into the Lutheran Church. But if we could, Scott, as I kind of mentioned, maybe we could do it at the beginning, and I've done a poor job of getting us there. So we have these two figures. I would say, um, Flacius or Flacius is a lot less well known, although there's more and more coming out on him now. In many ways, he's the father of Lutheran Church history. Um, the Magdeburg Centuries, the Catalog of True Testimonies. He's known for going around Europe and finding manuscripts. The library in Wolfenbüttel is full of great sources because of Flatsius. Um In many ways, he's one of the fathers of um, ecclesiastical hermeneutics. Um, his clavis is the textbook on how to read the scriptures for a long time. Um, and yet he's largely going to be known by this stubbornness that's connected to original sin. And I think you can tell me if it's fair to say Um, Melanchthon has a similar thing in that Melanchthon builds this outstanding career and he he still, through the Lutheran confessions, almost half of the Lutheran confessions are penned by Melanchthon. Definitely half or more are penned by Melanchthon or his students. Um, But uh, Robert Kolb, I don't know who he's quoting when he says this, but I've heard him say that someone says Bente is what turned the Missouri Synod mean. (laughs) And uh, what he means is you read Bente and Bente is extremely unfair to Melanchthon, I would say. Um, and because Bente was published in the Triglata, which is the Lutheran Confessions, in English, German, and Latin, all in one book with Bente in there, most Wisconsin and Missouri Synod pastors, what they know of after Luther's death to the Formula of Concord is Bente. Is that fair in your experience? I as think too? I'd go
2: further. I'd say what most Lutheran pastors
1: know of Reformational history is probably from Bente. Nah. And Melanchthon is pictured there as I would almost, I would say, a coward. Synergist, coward. <laughs> And Flacius is pictured there kind of as a hero, hero. But in a way that I think is almost pictured as like this like fresh, like if you picture like hardcore seminarians coming out that they're going to yeah. save Lutheranism and like almost mean spirited yeah. and like, I would rather crash and burn everything than, than, and, be,
0: than be a Philippist. And yeah. that wasn't,
1: yeah. Flacius was grieved by these controversies. Um, but maybe if you could, Scott, um, one big corrective you would offer on Melanchthon one of his great strengths that you think we could use today, and then maybe one of his weaknesses. Um, one big corrective, like I have so many of them, but
2: um, well, one I want to recommend a book. I, I don't know the exact title, but I'll, I can find it email to you guys. It's David Anderson's book on Luther's epistemology. Um, if you read that book, you get a, I think you'll get a sense of how and why Luther avoided the pitfalls that Melanchthon and Flacius fell into. Because in there, Luther is very clear that when Luther says um, philosophy is the devil's whore, he doesn't mean philosophy particularly because, of course, Luther too was very familiar with philosophy and very adept in its use. Um, But he means that, like Mike said, shoehorning particular philosophies into scripture, holding them above scripture, making them fit scripture. Um, is the devil's whore, um, and he, and such. He he avoids many of these pitfalls that these guys fall. fall Would that into. be a
1: David Anderson, Martin Luther, the problem of faith yep, and reason? Yep, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
2: Um, you know, Melanchthon is a humanist. He 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 is trained in languages and in ancient philosophy. This is this is what his training is long before he becomes a theologian. Um, and so his pitfalls are that he in his pursuit of consoling the heart by giving the heart clear definitions uh, through which they can understand scriptures, he goes always to too far and too many changes so that by the end of the day and continually editing, continually revising, continually trying to rewrite so it's clearer, people become very unclear on what he actually believes. Um, It's true with the Augsburg Confession, as there's various editions of it, right? Calvin even signs a particular edition of the Augsburg Confession. It's true with the Loci. Um, 1521, Luther says is good enough to be added to the canon of Scripture, and that's not good enough for him. He writes (laughs) and rewrites it and rewrites it and rewrites it. From 1521 all the way through 1559 and to the end where when somebody says, well, in the lochi Melanchthon says, you have to say. Which one? You literally have to say which Lochi because there's literally three different books and multiple editions within the three different books. That's his downfall. Um, His strengths we talked about. I mean, the, the Augsburg Confession, certainly the Apology, certainly his teaching of pastors for years and years and years. His protection of the University of Wittenberg for and which Luther he, probably and Luther, which he becomes an unsung hero for and his work as Cole points out as an ambassador for the Lutheran gospel when Luther couldn't be that ambassador. Um, the reason and a lot of reason there was a small caldic league is the the literal footwork that Melanchthon did, yep. um, trotting himself out to these various areas and on behalf of what was happening at Wittenberg
1: and he attends way more meetings than Luther. Oh, way more. Yep. Yeah. Is it? If am I getting this story wrong? I'm trying to remember from Melanchthon's own life and correct me. But sometimes we think too well. Melanchthon wasn't willing to sacrifice for Lutheranism um, when the uh, proverbial uh, poop was ready to hit the fan. Um, Reuchlin, his great uncle, yep, um, wants to land him a new gig outside of Wittenberg because yeah. he sees this is going to get nasty. And Melanchthon basically says, no, I'm on this train with Martin. Yeah. He refuses to leave. I mean, this was a, a yeah. big, he he could have at that point bailed. Am I correct on he that? He could have, <laughs>
2: yeah. So Rourkeland is a famous humanist sort of on par with Erasmus um, in the early 1500s. He's a Hebraist. Uh, learned Hebrew essentially from Kabbalist rabbis, uh-huh. um, which gets him into some trouble <laughs> later. But has an extensive library, has a lot of position. He actually uses his influence to get Melanchthon a position at the University of Wittenberg, and then uses his influence again to get him another position that Melanchthon turns down, which causes uh, Reuchlin to disown Melanchthon. Yep. Um, uh, Reuchlin had put him in his will for his library, break. Yep. for his library and many other things, and he disowns Melanchthon from
1: that point on. Um, so biggest weakness would probably be biggest corrective you would offer is a little too wed to humanism and
2: yeah, a little too much, um, a little too much philosophy, a little too, um, a lack of confidence in, you know, that what he wrote was beneficial as is. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the day, (laughs) he's not a leader. He's not the leader Luther is, and that's clear. Uh, That's clear after Luther's death.
1: And I think a a similar weakness with Flacius would be uh, not a leader, right? He also is a thinker and he's a publisher, but he's not going to be a very good leader of um, this movement, even at Jena. um, He gets a position at Jena, and Jena becomes kind of the competitor of Wittenberg and the Gymnasial Lutheran University, and and Flacius isn't able to hold that together, right? Um, I would say... My biggest correct, uh, corrective with Flacius or flatius would be, and I think this is a very timely one, I think there's both something needed in our age and, and then a, um, a weakness um, that's a danger in our age, is I think, um, somewhat like Luther, flatius was prone to see things in apocalyptic terms, right? Everything was the possible death of Luther's legacy and the gospel, to be fair, some of these things potentially look like that at the time. But there was a an inability, I think, sometimes to step back um, and to give people a fair reading in the context they were writing um, and to uh, to ask the important question, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And I think this is a danger in our own age, too. When you throw in political instability, cultural change— um, Religious crises, um, I think there's a lot of people who are prone to see everything in apocalyptic terms um, and maybe not to give a fair reading to others and to say, um, what do they mean in this context? What are you trying to say? And if you need any proof of that, and I don't encourage you to do this, um, go on Lutheran social media, right? I mean, it's just rife with it. And I will say, mea culpa, I have fallen into it. Um, plenty of times in my own life And I know especially coming out of seminary One of the reasons I was drawn to Flatsius Was probably Bente um, And this You know you come out on fire And you want to fight for the for the truth And I think in that is helpful to remember Where that eventually led um, Which is his undoing And his inability to really contribute to Lutheranism In a positive way Much after the original sin controversy um, Because his zeal got the the best of him Right? It's good to be concerned about a good thing, but you can take it too far. His strength, I would say, that is also needed today, and so it's interesting it's in one person, is his willingness to engage all kinds of sources for what's out there for his day. Um, he is in, engaged in the academics of his day like Melanchthon. Um, it's not like Flatius only knows Luther. He's Or theology. Be, right, he's going to be doing hermeneutics, philosophy, um, Melanchthon's it, doing history, mathematics, yeah. philosophy. And I mean, it really, economy. history is coming out of these Wittenberg students largely because of Melanchthon. You look at these early church histories that are produced, and their students of Melanchthon, and Flacius would give Melanchthon credit for that. There's um, a willingness, if it is, um, even in a time of crises, to be well-read um, and to be engaging um, the best of what's out there, even if it's not from your camp. Um and I would say that is something that when it was not doctrinal, Flatius was able to do. Um, but the weakness was to be able to step away from the doc. It consumed him, right? These things yeah. consumed him in a way that I think became extremely unhealthy. Maybe just briefly, um, if you have anything, how does the formula maybe become the best of both of these tensions? Yeah,
2: I was just thinking about that because I'm thinking of Melanchthon and Luther at Wittenberg for over a quarter century together. Luther's kind of prone to flying off the handle. Melanchthon's prone to Melanchthon being— Melanchthon
1: writes apology letters for Luther. Yeah, or to I, being yeah. overly
2: careful. And if we're looking for advice for theologians today, or you know, young men coming out of seminary today, you know, if you're prone to flying off the handle, if you're prone to seeing everything as the end of the world, the end of Lutheranism, maybe find somebody um, with whom you can have serious discussions that can balance you a little bit yep. instead of demonizing that person. Yeah. Um, I think we need that today. They're, we're demonizing each other today. We're, we're <laughs> the the um, fiery ones are demonizing the careful ones, and the careful ones are demonizing the firing ones, and the ones who only want to read the approved list are demonizing those who read broadly, and the ones who read broadly are accusing them of not having an open mind. And we need a bit of a balance here. Yep. And I think the formula you had you had students of Melanchthon in the formula trying to correct Melanchthon without naming him yep, and naming that that's what they were doing. And I pray that I have had students throughout the years who will do the same for me, right? Who will respect what I've done enough to correct me where I need correcting, but do so in a way that just makes a positive argument. And that's what the formula does. I mean, you have them you really have them correcting him on third use of the law. You have them correcting him on on the, on the sin and on the will. But they do so carefully. They do so respectfully. And they do so without demonizing him. They make a positive argument for what ought to be said while saying, this is what we're correcting.
1: Something that comes to mind as you mentioned that is I think when Lutheranism is maybe its most vibrant or when theology is its most vibrant, this isn't just a Lutheran thing. Um, is a, a willingness to look at the generation that came before them and to say, what was the best of what they did? Um, what did they fight for and why did it matter to them? But then to be able to say, this now is not canon. Yeah. Um, what did they maybe miss? Um, what were some of the weaknesses? What was de emphasized because they had to overemphasize something else? I mean, you look in our own synod and we had the break with Missouri and fellowship becomes the defining doctrine in the Wisconsin Synod because you had just had this break with Missouri, well, if you're going to operate for 60 years only in the light of that struggle, you're going to have some real challenges facing 2019 struggles as well. If Missouri, its defining struggle is really probably the battle over the Bible, you could say in many ways. And if that becomes the defining thing, and you're never able to ask what are we maybe – de as we needed to place emphasis on this, you're missing a lot. And I, I think that to be able to save the previous generation, how can we as kindly as possible take the best of what they have to give but maybe see where we missed out on some stuff? And I think um, that's where other help authors from outside of our circles, and I'll say former Synodical Conference circles, Missouri, ELS, Wells, can be helpful when you look at someone, and I won't name anyone because then someone's just going to come after us because you've said one of the names of the <coughs> authors. But why are they concerned about this? What were they pushing against? And maybe they didn't say everything the way we would say it, but what is? what are they maybe pointing out that's something that's we missed that we could pick up on? And, um, and I think this is especially important regarding preaching um, because my favorite theologians are pushing back about preaching, right? What... <coughs> what they see as lacking in preaching because I think at the end of the day, theology is only as good as the preaching it produces. I mean, that's how it gets to the people. Um, And I think there's a real value in that. I think both Melanchthon and Flacius were worried about preaching. Um, I think Flacius saw original sin and free will is so important because if you don't understand who you're preaching to, um, you're going to preach very differently. And, you know, you look at the American Arminian type setting where basically preaching becomes persuasion. Yeah. And you you can't have real gospel proclamation when you're trying to persuade because the gospel doesn't care about persuading. Um, as you like to reference, Scott, first order preaching is just, you know, here it is, deal with it. Yeah. <clears throat> God loves you, deal with Christ it. Christ died for you. Yeah. Um, I guess, that Mike, Scott, anything else you have? I'll give you the last word. I don't want to hog.
2: um i mean i I think this was a very help- personally I think it was it was a helpful discussion for me um even the sports stuff i mean this is this was fun this is what it's supposed to be um this is why we got into the game. we didn't get into the game to hate one another um I hope that at the end of my life, I can be as honest as Luther was at the end of his and pick everything you know. Pick the three things I've written or said that were good and say that the rest ought to be burned.
1: Uh, Or like Augustine who writes and says, like, here's all the things I take back. Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, um, maybe just finally then, since we have you here, Scott, one or two minutes as we close out before we see if you remember to say our catchphrase. Um, (laughs) We've got you here. You are um, 1517 as an organization. People know we're part of that. We mention it all the time. Um, I don't think people recognize the breadth of what 1517 does from podcast to publishing um, to its online presence, free courses now that are being offered, um, some very good ones. Adam Francisco, Rod Rosenblatt, um, uh, Chad Bird has now on the Old Testament. Um, I'm just trying to go through some of them in my mind from recent history. If you were going to give, and I think a lot of people are siloed in their experience with fifteen seventeen. You have people who mostly listen to the podcast or mostly read the blogs or mostly read the books, <clears throat> maybe mostly do the academy. If you were going to give just kind of a short and sweet, what is 1517? What is it about? Why does it exist? Who is it for? Um, how would you explain it?
2: Well, I mean, the, why does it exist is easy. We worked on that for a while. It's to proclaim the gospel of Christ Jesus to as many people as possible in as many ways as possible. So that as many ways as possible means that we do a lot of stuff. I mean, we spon- We have our own blog site. We sponsor other blog sites. We have now 14 podcasts. We have a speakers bureau that sends speakers all over the world.
1: Which is why you're here in Wisconsin. Which is
2: why I'm here in Wisconsin. We uh, sponsor local conferences, and then we sponsor our big conference in October. Um, we have the Academy, which is online recorded courses that are that – are world-class level instructors teaching world-class level courses on various topics for free. Um, all of this content is offered for free. Um, we, we always like to say if you, if you are touched, um, or helped by anything that we do just visit 1517.org and hit donate and any amount really helps. Um, it's hard to figure all the, we do so much that it's hard to, to put it into an elevator speech. Um, I encourage people to go look at 1517.org, dot org. Check out the books that we sell through the publishing house, the blogs that we write, the podcasts that we produce, including "Let the Bird Fly." Um, and if there's something helpful there to you, praise be to God.
1: And they, uh, one of the things I've appreciated is just packaged well too.
2: Yeah, we try for quality.
1: Yeah, it um, it's and it's not packaged in a way to be gimmicky or sell something. It's packaged because I think there's a conviction that the content deserves. Well, We have, a, we have a
2: creative director who's become quickly becoming a Lucas Cranick scholar. Um for which is sort of the if you see the the altar piece uh Wittenberg and the Castle Church, you know, and the publishings and the woodcuts and whatnot, supervise all those who thinks that the message is the message of the gospel is really important. Um it ought to hit people in a quality way.
1: Uh-huh. and uh yeah, and I i mean, in the Climbaras, with stuff like that, yeah. just uh, just amazing. Um, I will say, too, I mean, one of the things I've appreciated about 1517 is, you know, um, we had started this podcast, and Mike got the call here, Mike joined. Um, we are four Wisconsin Wisconsin-scented guys. And, you know, I know at first when I had been writing for 1517 and Caleb had reached out about the podcast, we had kind of said, you know, the thing is, we're Wisconsin centered guys. Like, we're, we have a church body, we have our convictions that— and um, and from beginning to end, fifteen seventeen, has said, uh, No, we like what you're doing. You do your thing. If there's ever anything you don't want to do, don't do it. And um, Caleb has always been amazing. If there's ever anything, you know, it's you shoot an email or a, what does he does Google Hangouts, whatever. And um, in my experience, mm-hmm. uh, I've just seen you guys as kind of gathering people that are um, that dig the gospel and said. We like you doing your thing. We want to help you do your thing for more people. And that has been um, a blessing for me um, on the writing side and the recording side. I think, Mike, your experience has been similar. Um, we've got people from uh, Lutheran Brethren. Am I getting that denomination right? Yeah, Lutheran
2: Brethren. Um, Missouri Synod. Missouri, uh, NALC, LCMC.
1: Uh, and, it and, you know, kind of have it be you do your thing and, and not a uh, – there's no – no one's ever said to me, here's the 1517 thing you got to do. Um, the one time I think we would get in trouble is if we stopped being about Jesus. Yeah, that's Um yeah, that's, I think yeah. we'd get a phone call or an email. Yeah, and, uh, and so I've really appreciated that. And so uh, we thank uh, Joy for joining us, uh, even though she hasn't been able to say anything. <laughs> but uh, um, we got to hang out. Uh, I enjoyed uh, hanging with her at the session, and then we got to meet up uh, – Friday and then you guys got to hang out with the Berg's on Saturday I hope they treated you all right yeah it was great um, they're usually pretty good at hosting uh, Amanda's a pleasure to be around and then Mike was there um, I, c- I cooked and cleaned yeah it. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's been great to see you today I hope you're off to the Harley Museum
2: we're going to the Miller
1: Miller uh, tour, okay. Miller tour,
2: and I'm gonna get a t-shirt because Miller Lite is the king of beers. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and uh, that's a great tour. It's, I hope you've enjoyed Milwaukee. Um, it's been great to have you in Wisconsin, and I guess as you make your way back, and just with everything 1517 does, uh, at the end of the day, when when God's done it all for you, when we have a world given back to us, uh, what's all that's left to do, Scott?
2: Let the bird fly.
0: Every evening when the sun goes down. My party and I begin to I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a dink I'll set him up another round I'll set him up another round I'll set him up another round One more round won't get me down